Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, a New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul. And last week, our missionary, Matt, turned us to the very beginning of Colossians 1, describing for us the thanksgiving we are meant to, di to, to display because of the spread of the gospel around the world. The gospel has gone near and far, and so we need to give praise to God. And in this Advent season, we're going to continue in Colossians chapter 1, looking at the reconciliation that comes through the gospel, the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ, considering Christmas through the lens of Colossians 1. We're borrowing a phrase from the Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. I mean, this is a season in the year in which you hear deep theology from your car radio while you walk through the mall. God has reconciled himself to sinners through Jesus Christ. This is good news for us today. Listen as I read in Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is good news announced to us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to pray. So we give thanks to God for his word, and we ask him to change us as we listen to it applied to our lives. Father in heaven, we give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ, thanking you for the reminder of forgiveness that we have in this Christmas season. Lord, we thank you that, that through the, the busyness, the chaos, the, the family uh, gatherings, the shopping, Lord, that we have this good news, that you have rescued us from our sins. You have brought us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, your son, the one whom you love. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that today, if we're here just investigating the, the claims of Christianity because of the season, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of those who listen, that you would grant them an inheritance in your kingdom of light, that you would give them your strength, your power, your might, that you would transform them. Lord, do that work in our hearts as we, Lord, are resistant to the hope of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would work in our midst. We pray tonight for the, the, the Christmas concert as we sing and hear the songs of the angels, that as the, the friends, the neighbors, the classmates, the teammates, the, 
the family members that we've invited tonight would, would join us. Lord, even those that will get a, a last-minute invitation from us today, that they would, would come out, even if merely for the nostalgia of the season, but Lord, that tonight, in the words of your gospel, you would transform our hearts, that you would transform this community, that we would see neighbors bow the knee before Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Father, do that work in our hearts now. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to endure through, through pain and persecution, through suffering in this life. For Lord, this season is, yes, a season of light, but we are reminded of the darkness, of the brokenness of relationships, of the sorrow and sadness around us. And so Lord, as a congregation, we join in praying this morning for one of our elders, Chuck Hartzell. Lord, as he today is in the hospital, Lord, we pray for his recovery. We pray for a, a clear diagnosis from, from staff, from technicians, from doctors and nurses who provide care. Lord, we pray for gospel hope to be given to his wife Peg, to his family as they gather with him. Lord, we pray for his recovery that we might see him continue in his gospel ministry in our midst. But Lord, we pray for his endurance and perseverance. Lord, that you would grant him the comfort of knowing that he belongs to you. Lord, give us that peace and comfort today in this Christmas season. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son whom you love, our Savior. Amen. And one of the great frustrations of any sports fan is when you get late in the season and your team doesn't really have anything to play for. I mean, maybe because you know, there's still some hope. They've already secured their, their position in the, the championship, and so they're resting their best players. But you've shelled out all this money, and you're watching backups play for this price? Or worse, it's the frustration when your team is just kind of coasting. They've kind of given up because they've been out of it since the second or third week of the season, it felt like. And so they're complacent. They're not trying. There's no real defensive effort. Now, that's a small frustration in the grand scheme of things, the frustration in our entertainment choices. But there's a, there's a danger in the Christian life, I think, where we can kind of do the same. We can get complacent. We can take that same approach. When we hear the good news of the reconciling work of what God has done for us, we think, oh, then I guess I'm good, right? Like if the end is already secured, if I'm already there in the championship, I mean, why take any risks between now and then? I can spiritually just sit back and, and put up my feet. But our lack of spiritual effort is a presumption upon the grace of God. We might think I've already received God's grace since we become complacent and self-satisfied. We begin to spiritually coast. The outcome is secure, so we're fine. But this is a radical misunderstanding of God's grace. God's grace secures the sinner. You are given the gift of eternal life when you come to, to God by faith. It is guaranteed. But that shouldn't cause you to sit back and coast. Colossians 1 is, is going to make the clear argument. Paul's fervent prayer for the Colossian believers is that when you know your salvation is secure, you are motivated to move forward. 
You are motivated to live a life worthy of the Lord. See, Colossians 1 affirms for us the greatness of God's grace. God is the one who fills us with knowledge of his plan of salvation. God is the one whose strength works in us. God is the one who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And now we are meant to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. But maybe coasting through life isn't, isn't your problem. I mean, maybe yours is the exact opposite. You're somebody who feels like you're, you're running ragged. You're still trying to, to secure the outcome. You're still trying to get yourself in. Maybe there's still hope if you can just work a little bit harder today. Maybe you're spiritually giving so much effort because you think it's all up to you. Maybe you think, maybe I could deserve salvation. I could make myself savable if I could just clean this up a little bit. Colossians 1 challenges our self-sufficiency when we think we have it all together. Colossians 1 challenges our self-satisfaction when we just sit back and coast. I must be good. On this first Sunday of Advent, Colossians 1 helps us see the purpose and significance of the arrival of Jesus our Lord. Now, I'm only going to preach from one sentence this morning. The problem is that one sentence is all of the verses that I read to you. In the original Greek, Paul just, just keeps going. Now, thankfully, our translators, so that we as English readers whose minds don't work that way, maybe if you were a German reader, you'd be fine because they just stack sentences uh, and, and phrases up upon themselves like, like it works in Greek. But in English, we need it broken up so that we can see what's happening. And so, so really, all I'm going to do is that we're going to take this one thought, this one idea. And, and I love the way that the Apostle Paul, once he gets started on an idea, I mean, it's, it's actually as if the Greek language w really works well for him because he can just keep going. He doesn't have to stop and breathe. He can just let the excitement of what he is talking about continue to build. This prayer for the Colossians, this reminder of what he is, is praying for them, just continues to build. And so we'll just look at it really in the way that, that the, the English translators have, have broken this one long sentence into, into three different sentences. We're going to look first at, at Paul's prayer that the Colossians would have knowledge of God's will. That's verse 9. Verses 10 through 12 then, that Paul prays that they would live lives worthy of the Lord. And that's rooted in verses 13 and 14, God's provision of rescue. So we're just going to walk through the passage today of, of, of the knowledge we have of God, the response that's required from us, and the rescue that we are given. First, look back at verse 9. Paul says, for this reason, now you actually then have to remember all the way back to last week or just look a, verse, a couple of verses up. What reason? Because of the thanksgiving that we give to God because of the work of the gospel spreading around the world. Because the gospel is such good news, for this reason... I, Paul, pray for you. Since the day we heard about you, because this is a church that the Apostle Paul has not visited. This is, if you trace out his missionary journeys, Colossae is not on the itinerary. It's probable then that while he was in Ephesus some miles away, that Epaphras, who is mentioned here in, we, we read his name last week, 
when Matt was here in verse 7, that Epaphras came to Ephesus, heard the gospel, and then he went and planted the church in Colossae. And so Paul has never been there. He's never met these Christians face to face. But, but, but since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And what is the prayer in verse 9? He is asking God to fill the believers with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All right, now when I first read that sentence, when I think about God's will, I read that in a very personal and honestly somewhat selfish kind of way. When I think about God's will for my life, I think about, well, what's next? What decision do I have right in front of me? When Paul, though, and that's maybe the way that we would use it most frequently in English, but when Paul speaks about God's will, he's not saying about God's will for your individual life, God's will for what job you should take or, or, or who you should date or what city you should live in. It, it's not God's individual will. When, when Paul speaks about God's will, he means God's cosmic plan of rescue from the beginning of creation spanning all the way to God's return, Jesus' return, and God's fixing of everything. When he speaks of God's will, he's speaking of this great announcement of good news. This announcement that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, has arrived to bring rescue to the whole world. Even people in Colossae, Gentile pagans, are invited to receive the gift that is given to them. And so Paul's prayer for God's will, yes, God's grand cosmic will will impact the individual decisions we make, but he's not starting with us individually. He's starting with the good news of the gospel that's announced to us, a plan made by God, a plan that includes even the Gentiles in the salvation that's offered. And this would be a contrast to the way many of the religious systems, particularly in the ancient world in a city like Colossae, would have functioned, where it was basically an infomercial that said, if you will send in your 1995 today, I will grant you the secret knowledge that you need of God's will. And I'll send you in return this book that I've written, and you'll be added to my mailing list, and you can get via monthly. It, I mean, it was, it was basically, that's the way many of the ancient religions in the world, we have this secret. We have this knowledge of God's will. But we don't want to ruin it by, by telling everyone, you have to prove your worth maybe through a series of sacrifice or, or paying a certain amount or, or being of the right social standing or, or the right education, you would have to prove yourself to be welcomed into the inner circle to, be, to have this secret knowledge revealed to you. That's the way the ancient world worked in many of the religious systems. But in contrast to that, what Paul is saying is, I'm praying fervently that you would know the will of God that God would fill you with understanding of what he is doing. This, this good news that has been announced throughout the world near and far, you are meant to hear this good news. See, Christianity is in clear contrast to other religious systems that tell you you have to do something first to earn it, to deserve it, to pay for it before the gift is yours. Now, maybe you think, yeah, yeah this is where, though, the Bible begins to lose credibility with me. How can anyone, you think, be so arrogant as to say, I know God's will. I know God's cosmic plan, and I'm here to tell it to you. I had lunch this week with a, with a close childhood friend. I mean, a friend for, for decades. We've been friends since the, 
the fifth grade. He's a, a salesman, and so he was in the area, and so we, we caught up and had lunch. Now, because of the overlap, he, uh, that we both spend time in hospitals. He's a medical supply salesman, and so he's often trying to make sales, and I go to visit people in the hospital. We, we got talking about the seriousness of life and death. Now, which I guess is just generally a problem if you have lunch with a pastor. He might turn the conversation there. But one of, one of my friend's main objections to the Christian faith is that it, it just feels like wishful thinking. Like, how could anyone know? I mean, faith isn't knowledge. Faith is just a, a guess, a leap in the dark. That's, that's what he thinks. And, and then so then tied to that, this, this fact that, that to him, any kind of faith is just a, a leap into the dark, to then say, but I know the truth, means the person who's leaping into the dark has the arrogance to tell everybody else, leap into the dark with me. Like, how foolish does that sound? I mean, that was the objection. And this is a conversation which, which I, I said, you know, I think this is a conversation we've been having for 30 years. He said, well, I can at least remember we've been having it for the last 10 years. And it's, it's hard to have a conversation with somebody who's known you that long, right? Somebody who can say, yeah, remember in middle school when you got that detention for being a jerk? And then he can specifically remind me of, really, what a terrible jerk I was. I mean, one of those things that now, as a, as a parent of middle schoolers, it crushes me. You know, one of those moments where you realize, I really am the worst imaginable person. And a friend who can sit across the table and say, you're, you're going to tell me that you've figured out salvation? That's so why I had to say to him, no, 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 that's not, I'm not telling you I'm taking a leap into the dark. I'm not saying I figured this out. I'm not inviting you to come gain this secret knowledge from me. God himself has announced it to us. I mean, that's the message of Christmas. God has arrived. I mean, this knowledge that, that Paul says is, is not a knowledge that Paul would have, would have believed for himself. He needed God not only to show up at, in, in Bethlehem at Christmas time, he needed God to show up on the road to Damascus in a bright and bright blinding light and reveal to him, I am Jesus the Christ, your master and Lord. And so the challenge I offered to my friend across the table was what would it take if, if God was offering you rescue? What would it take for you to know this? What if he showed up and announced it? What if he went to the cross and rose from the dead? See, faith is not a blind leap. It's a knowledge of what God has already done for us. And, and so Paul's prayer is that we would be filled with this knowledge, with, with spiritual understanding, with spiritual wisdom. See, I know God's will. It's not because I'm smarter or better than anyone else. I know God's will because he's made it known. He's revealed it to all of us. See, Christmas confronts us with the reality of God's rescue plan. And so as Paul continues, there's a response that's demanded from us. If God is making his will known, then Paul's prayer in verse 10 continues. And so we pray this, that you would know God's will in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. If you have heard good news, then it should change you. It should change everything about your life. 
your walk through this world, it should change the way you think and act. So that every part of your life, you're seeking to, to live in a way that pleases God. And Paul just continues then. This is where, where the, 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 the words just kind of flow at us without ceasing. His prayer is that we would live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him in every way. And so verse 10 continues, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. This language of bearing fruit of, of growth is, is the language which echoes back to the beginning of creation, where God, God wants us to grow, to be fruitful, to multiply. He wants that in our individual lives. He wants that in the church. He wants that in the, the mission of the church as it spreads around the world, that you and I are growing in good works. Not good works so that we can say, hey, God, look, I've, I've cleaned myself up. Will you rescue me now? No, that's not the order of, of events. It's, God, you have rescued me. You have transformed me. And so now I'm going to change the way I live by your power. Because that's what he says then in verse 11, that this growth, this increase, this, this fruit-bearing good work, this pleasing of God comes in verse 11 by the strength of might, and power of God. I mean, listen as I read how, how these, these, those synonymous phrases are just piled on top of each other so that you and I are clear we can't take credit for it. It is God's work. Listen to verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Whose strength? God's. Whose power? God's. Whose might? God. And if we turn to, to the, the book of Ephesians, which an, another letter to, a, to another church written about the same time, both were letters written while Paul was a, a prisoner. Paul's prayer in, in Ephesians chapter 1 for the, the church in Ephesus echoes and is, is parallel to what he is praying here, but he, but he makes even more explicit what God's power looks like. So, so just flip a couple pages toward the front of your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We see the, the power of of God at work. Ephesians 1, I'll begin at verse 18. Paul is praying. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's the parallel to what we've just read, that we would have the knowledge of God's will. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. All right, this is the power that he is talking about in Colossians 1. But, but, but listen as I continue in Ephesians 1. What does this power look like? Verse 19, Ephesians 1, 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that, been, that can be given, not only in the present age, but it also in the one to come. You see the power of God that is at work in you. God's glorious, mighty, powerful strength. That power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power is the power which exalted Jesus, the true Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son whom God loves. It exalted Him from earth to heaven to reign over everything. 
And that's where Paul's argument will continue. You'll come back next week as his argument continues to see the, the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the one with power over all. But the power that is at work in us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power, as we turn back to Colossians 1, and look again at Colossians 1, verse 11, that power works in us so that so in Ephesians, he tells us what kind of power. In Colossians, he tells us what the power does. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. What does God's power work in us? When you see that, that God has saved you, he has given you the, the knowledge of his gospel, he has transformed your life, then you are strengthened by God's power, to live with great endurance and patience in the face of suffering. See, as I talked over lunch, having just visited in the hospital, I'd had a conversation in the hospital. And the woman, a, a believer in Christ, was saying, how could anyone be here without hope? And in the room the night before next to theirs, there was weeping and wailing at the loss of a loved one. A family she assumes without hope. So when Paul speaks of this, he's not speaking to us from the comfort of his living room. He's not speaking out of the, the convenience of modern life. Paul is a prisoner in chains for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet when he talks about this gospel... He can't help but get excited about the great power of God at work. It's that power which raised Jesus from the dead. And you might think, but Paul, you are in chains. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, surely he could free you from this. And yet Paul recognizes that his chains are an opportunity. He'll say that later in Colossians. His chains are an opportunity for others to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So you and I need this hope. And the darkness of Christmas, the reason that we light candles to remind us of what God has done is because you and I live in a world broken by sin, we need this good hope so that we can give thanks to God. And that kind of is wrapping up this, this, this section of Colossians 1. It takes us all the way back to verse 3. We began by giving thanks to God. Paul said in, in verse 3 of Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then Paul begins to unfold the, the work of the gospel in the lives of the, the believers. And so he comes back to, as you see the gospel at work, as you're able to endure in the darkness, you then give thanks. Paul's thanks leads him to rejoice in the hope of the gospel, which is meant to, to, to encourage the Colossian believers in thanksgiving. And so the, the endurance that you and I need, the patience that we need, is meant to be connected there in verses 11 and 12, with joyfully giving thanks to God, even in the sorrow and sadness, because we know what God has done for us. This announcement of good news at Christmas demands a response from us. We have been given knowledge of what God is doing, and we are meant to live lives worthy of the gospel, 
to endure through the power of God at work in us. And why? Verses 12 and 13 then, then show us the rescue that God has brought. God has rescued us from sin. How can we joyfully give thanks? Verse 12. Because God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You are given a portion in the land of God's heavenly kingdom. You are given his inheritance. You are welcomed into his family. You are called a saint, one who has been made holy by the power of God if you put your trust in him. You have an inheritance in God's kingdom of light. And then Paul is explicit then in verses 13 and 14. Why can you and I have hope? What is the knowledge that we are meant to to hold on to? To give us hope in the midst of endurance, it's the fact that God, in verse 13, has rescued us. We give thanks. We endure. We live lives worthy of the calling. Verse 13 For God has rescued us. This is the good news of Christmas. It's not the nostalgia of gifts and and giving and cookies. Those are joyous celebrations, reminders that are meant to point us back, to gather us as families, to force us to consider what God has done for us. The good news of Christmas is that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The contrast between light and dark is clear. The kingdom of the Son He loves is the kingdom of light. God has pulled us out of the kingdom, the dominion of darkness, and brought us into light. We were once blinded without hope, without knowledge of the gospel, and now God has given us this knowledge and hope. He has rescued us through his son. God gives us an inheritance. We belong to him. We belong to him forever. An inheritance that that gives us hope that the coming kingdom of God belongs to us. Now we are part of God's kingdom. God rescues us from our sins. Verse 14 then says, "In, in Christ, in Jesus, the son God loves, in him we have redemption. We have been bought with a price. We have been freed from our slavery to sin. We are no longer under the power or the dominion of darkness. We have been freed. And how does Christ do this? He does it because we have been reconciled to God through Christ's death. That's what we'll see in verse 22, or if we jumped to chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus Christ disarms the powers and authorities Jesus makes a public spectacle of the powers and authorities, the dominion of darkness, triumphing over them by the cross. See, the hope of Christmas is only meaningful to us when we see the purpose for which Jesus came, to to buy us out of sin, to buy us out of the dominion of darkness, to, to welcome us into his kingdom. This is the forgiveness of sins, which, yes, then, where, where we started— If you have the certain hope that you belong to God, that you have been redeemed, that you have been forgiven, what should that do? Should it cause you to sit back and do nothing? Like, I'm good. No. But it should force you to ask that question. Paul actually expects, if you begin to understand how free grace is, how great grace is, I mean, in Romans 6, he actually expects that people will ask this question, wait, if grace is that free, 
I don't have to do anything? No. There is nothing expected of you. Your rescue is not dependent upon who you are. It's not, it's not dependent upon how much money you have. It's not dependent upon how many degrees you have. It's not dependent upon how good you think you are. You have been rescued. You were under the dominion of darkness. There was nothing good in you. You had no hope in yourself. And once you see the, the, the grandness of this grace... Once you can, with the Apostle Paul, begin to explore the way God's power is at work in you, that God is the one who has given you knowledge of this gospel, then you realize, if this news is that good, I need to to live a life that reflects the goodness of this gospel. God has freed me from the power of sin. I don't have to sin any longer. I can choose to live for him. When, When you see the good news of this gospel, the light being brought into a dark world, then you say, Wait, I have light to take to people who are lost in darkness? I have to share this good news. And here's the beauty of the Christmas season. You have all kinds of opportunities to talk about Jesus. I mean, that's one of the great things about living in a, in a country with a residual memory of the gospel. Even if your coworker doesn't believe it, when you're listening to the Easy Listening Station, and it talks about the reconciling work of God, the radio brought it up. When you gather with family and friends to give gifts, you can share the gift that you have been given. When you see a neighbor, a coworker, maybe there's somebody you can still call today. Stop by their house, grab an invitation, bring them back with you tonight to the concert. Somebody who might simply for nostalgic reasons be willing to join you. Or somebody who just sees the beauty of music and recognizes that some of the greatest music ever written was written around Christmas. You have light. You are, a, a, you are in the kingdom of light, but yet your neighbors and friends are trapped in the dominion of darkness. God rescues and redeems. It's the promise that God made to his people in freeing them from slavery. God says, I will redeem you. I will be your God. I will give you an inheritance with me forever. And so we hear the angelic announcement of forgiveness and redemption. God and sinners reconciled. This kingdom of light gives us hope in the darkness. In the darkest days of the 20th century, as the shadow of evil fell across Europe, the evil of the Holocaust, the courage of one woman was the difference between life and death for a few Jewish families from her little Ukrainian village. So a news story captures the horror of the situation and and points us to the urgent action taken by Esther Sturmer. As the other Jews living in her village were rounded up and sent off to camps where most of them would die, Esther flees with her six children underground. She flees from the city into the caves out in the fields, these giant sinkholes. She takes along with her several other families into these caves, 38 men, women, and children, into darkness. An underground lake provides water. At night, one of the men from each family sneak out to forage for food under the cover of darkness. For one year and 146 days, they lived 
in darkness. Now, it's a world record. No one's ever lived in a cave that long. In total darkness. Only a few of the men ever coming out of the cave at all. The health effects are serious. It's a struggle for survival, and they need rescue. You see, trapped in the darkness, they have no power over the war that takes place above them. They don't even know the sounds of the shelling. Which army is bombing us now? And finally, in April of 1944, their village is liberated. A foreign army has defeated the evil of the Nazis. Finally, Esther Sturmer and her family, 38 survivors, including four other families, step from darkness into light. Your rescue is even more grand. The darkness in which you were trapped was even deeper. The evil which overwhelmed you was not merely above you and outside you, but within you. This is the rescue that Jesus Christ offers, pulling you from darkness to light. Freed from the power and the guilt of your sin, you have been rescued by the Son of God, the Son whom God loves. Your rescue begins in a manger, but your rescue requires a cross. The good news is announced to us. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, the good news of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that this this good news would transform us, that the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead would be the power which brings change to our hearts, that we would turn from sin, that we would see the redemption that is offered to us, that we would respond by faith. Lord, for those who know this good news, that you would make us willing, obedient to share the gospel. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, praying for those who sit and listen today, who don't have a knowledge of Jesus Christ as the rescuer, for those still trapped in the dominion of darkness. We pray even now, as the service concludes, as we pray and we sing, that you would give faith to those who sit here today. Lord, make us lights, those that shine light into darkness, members of your kingdom of light. Lord, make us bold in our witness for Jesus this week, even today, where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.